Hey, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles or your devices there with you, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at two amazing verses, verses 16 and 17, Romans chapter 1. As you find your, your way there, I need to take the very first opportunity to say thank you, first of all, to Pastor Bill, Jay Lynn, for being such an amazing pastor couple. Aren't you grateful for our pastor family here at Ninth and O? Amen. For that matter, all of our pastor families, I count it a great joy personally uh, to count them as my pastors and to be a part of the Ninth and O family. I'm also very thankful, humbled by, by the invite to preach. Uh, I just never get over being invited to preach and having served in ministry myself, there's an incredible risk of trust when you invite someone else into the pulpit uh, over the flock for which you have accountability before the Lord. And so, man, no small thing to be here this morning. Pastor Bill has asked me, as, as I do in my role with the Kentucky Baptist Convention, as your evangelism team leader, the ministry our team is able to do is an extension of the ministry of Ninth and Old Baptist Church, made possible because of your cooperative program giving. And one of the joys of my role is just trying to encourage Kentucky Baptists to be the faithful witnesses of the gospel that we know God is calling us to be. And Pastor Bill asked me to encourage us in evangelism today, and one of the best ways I know to do that is simply by asking the question, who's your one? Who's that person in your life close to you, but best we can discern still far from the Lord? Now, what we mean to say by that statement is, you've not yet had an opportunity to have a gospel conversation with that person of substance or depth that you feel comfortable that they know where they are in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. First person in my life I could remember praying for in that capacity was Jason. Jason grew up on the farm adjoining to ours over in East Tennessee, and so we had known each other all our lives, growing up together, playing sports, riding the school bus, working in hay on one another's farms. And so, man, we had grown up sharing life uh, in the only the way that the best friends can, those childhood friends. Unfortunately, as we got into high school, Jason was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. It wasn't very long, at least my memory of events makes it seem like it wasn't very long before, as they were trying to treat that pretty aggressively, Jason had to be hospitalized, Children's Hospital, on a long-term basis. There were a couple of occasions when my mom drove me down to Knoxville to visit with Jason. And each night before we went, you, you literally would have found me church physically on my knees beside my bed as a brand new believer in Jesus Christ myself. I was praying that God would give me the courage, that God would open a door, God would help me somehow figure out how to tell my friend about Jesus. And then we would get down there, you can imagine that scene, uh, ICU, and uh, many years ago now, there were all these machines I had never seen before, Pastor Gabriel, and, and people constantly coming in and out, and it just never felt like a good time. I couldn't figure out how to get the conversation there, and would end up driving home, not even having to really tried. Now, you can imagine what that 40-minute ride home was like. I'm sure I was a pretty sour traveling companion, because you've been there, not, not the exact circumstances, but similar. And you, I was just in my own head, you know, like, what's wrong with you, man? Like, you know, why do you say something? Like, anything is better than nothing in a moment like that, right? And so I would try to encourage myself, as I'm sure you have in moments like these, say, well, you know, I'll tell him next time. I'll, I'll pray about it, and I'll tell him next time for sure. And then we got the call. My buddy had passed away in the night. They invited me, several of our high school buddies, to be pallbearers at his funeral. And 
I can remember it as vividly today as if it happened yesterday. I remember that day when all the funeral and the food and all those activities were over. I walked across the holler, as we say, in East Tennessee and climbed up into the loft of their barn and I just wept. I just remember weeping that night. Jason and I had the kind of friendship we talked about literally everything you could imagine, all kinds of nonsense and everything in between, and yet somehow I couldn't figure out how to talk to him about the most important topic there is, and that is where was he in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I made a determination sitting in the loft of that barn that night. I determined with God's help, I would never find myself ashamed or hesitant to share the gospel again. Now, if you're familiar with this text, you realize the Apostle Paul, under entirely different circumstances, is making basically that same determination. I'm so happy to be able to share with you as a church family today because not only does Paul come and say, hey, do the good you know you ought to be doing, right? Like pray for your one, share with your one. He says that, but so much more, he gives us four compelling reasons, none of us should ever be hesitant, afraid to share with our one, or I would argue anyone we meet. And so let's look at these together. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes for us, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we thank you in this moment that while we were still yet sinners, before we even knew we needed or what we needed, you loved us enough to send your son Jesus who died for us. We thank you that you have provided good news this morning. And as we turn our thoughts and attentions to it, we pray, Holy Spirit, that as you inspired Paul, many generations ago, to write these true, faithful words, you'd illuminate our hearts and minds today to, to be renewed, to be encouraged, to, to find life in the gospel. And that those who are here today that may not have yet truly surrendered their life to you might come today in faith and find life, forgiveness, hope in Jesus' name in which we pray. Amen. Well, the brief time I have with you this morning, four reasons I want to try to encourage you with. First of all, we should never be afraid, ashamed to share the gospel with our one or anyone we meet because the gospel is about the person of Jesus. It's about the person of Jesus. Uh, How do we know that God loves us this morning, church? Well, there's only one way, right? God loved us and demonstrated that love by sending his son, Jesus, who came in the form of a man, and as God in flesh, he showed us what life is really supposed to look like. This is what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what it looks like to really put shoes to the idea, love others as you love yourself. But more than that, Jesus determinedly, purposely went to the cross, where somehow as the Son of God, supernaturally, he brought upon himself in that moment the sins of humanity. My sin, your sin. He died for those sins, was buried, three days later, rose again. Now, church, here's what you know. If Jesus had not done every single one of those things and more, there's no good news to share today, is there? So much more than just bringing us good news, I would argue in many ways Jesus is the good news. So much so, Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he told them that when I was with you, I resolved to know nothing except what church? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because when we properly understand it, the gospel is really about the person of Jesus. He's the central character who is there. 
And I would humbly suggest to you, I think one of the reasons so many professing Christians today find it difficult or are not really sharing their faith is we've allowed the enemy of our souls to convince us the gospel is about something else. You know, I'm afraid today we've been led to believe, we've been deceived into thinking. The gospel is just another religious point of view. Or maybe something worse, an obnoxious political argument. That's not what it's about, is it, church? It's about being restored into a right relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus. It's about that personal relationship. Let me ask just for a second. Do we have any grandparents here in the room with us today? Yes. Did you notice how quickly and high those hands went in the air? Hey, grandparents, could I ask you a question? Have you ever had any difficulty turning basically any conversation into a conversation about your grandkids? <laughs> like, never, right? Like, we've all seen the pictures. I'm a relatively new church member. I've already seen the pictures, amen? And we love it. At least we love the way that you love them. And so we don't mind, do we, church? Sincerely, we don't. We don't get bit out of shape when you want to show us those pictures or tell us or retell us again how amazing that grandkid is or that fiance or that person in your life. We understand it. You can't help it. You just love them so much. They bring such joy, don't they? They bring such meaning to your life, whatever that relationship is. And so it's just normal. But can I suggest to you humbly, all teasing aside, that same dynamic is, I think, one of the things that confuses and confounds our lost friends the most. If Jesus is who he says that he is, and he can do in a life what the Bible says he can do, and we say not only do we know him, but that relationship is the defining reality of our lives, then I think the world wonders, well, then why aren't you talking more about him? Now, out of fairness, I want to quickly acknowledge right here the, the truth that Pastor Bill has been teaching us as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke, why is it actually so much harder to pray for lost people, to pray for your one than it seems like it ought to be? Why, why is it so much harder to tell somebody how much you love Jesus than it is to brag on your grandkids? Well, because every attempt at evangelism is an experience in spiritual warfare, isn't it, church? Oh, listen, Satan doesn't want your one or anyone to have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that clear. And listen, he doesn't want you to experience the incredible joy, that, that amazing spiritual growth that comes when we try to be a faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what does he do? He'll mobilize the hordes of hell to distract you, to discourage you, to make you feel inadequate, to make you feel nervous, to make you feel whatever way he can. And he'll lie to you and say, listen, they don't want to hear about Jesus anymore anyway. But church, I remind you this morning, that's a bunch of lies. And it's, it's authored by the father of lies. When it comes to your one, there's nothing to be afraid of, is there? You don't have to be ashamed there. Your one knows you care about them. That's what makes them your one, right? They're, they somehow are in a relationship that brings them close to you. And if you approach that person in just humility and say, hey, listen, I've not gone through exactly what I see you're going through right now. And I don't, I don't pretend to understand everything that you're going through. But I've gone through something similar in my life. Could I just share how knowing Jesus got me through that? If you were to come to that coworker and say, hey, listen, you know how much I respect you and value you as a coworker. Hey, listen, you know how much I, 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 you mean to me as a friend. And you know how much I love you as a family member. Could I just share for a minute or two why 
my relationship with Jesus means so very much to me. Listen, I would suggest you, if you come in that spirit, that humility, you'll find that you're one, and I would argue almost anyone is open to that kind of a sincere gospel conversation. We don't have to be afraid. We don't need to be ashamed. Now listen, if I had more time, we could spend hours talking about the beauty the glory, the immeasurable worth of Jesus himself. But, but what I would just say to you in this moment is just don't forget the gospel is about him. It's about the person of Jesus of whom we should be ready to share. Secondly, we should never be afraid, ashamed to share with our one or anyone because the gospel is the power of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation. Now notice Paul's emphasis. He does not say to us the gospel declares the power of God. He doesn't say it describes the power of God, as important as those things is. What does he say? He says it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, our, our seminary guys in the room know and ladies know that that Greek noun used here is dunamis. And I get in trouble with all these seminary folks around. But as I understand it, dunamis describes intrinsic power. And all that we mean to say by that is this kind of power inherently exists because of the very nature of the object itself. It's just latently there. In other words, you don't have to generate this kind of power. You just have to find a way to access it, a way to turn it loose. As way of illustration, dunamis is the root word from which we get our word dynamite. Now again, the Greek scholars in the room want me to tell you right away, Paul didn't understand the first thing about dynamite in his day. That's not on his mind here. But I also would affirm there are a lot of you Kentucky boys that just perked up when I said the word, didn't you? <laughs> it's interesting that what it takes to wake you up is talking about blowing up something, amen? And, and don't think we didn't pay attention to who you are. Security, watch that guy right back there. <laughs> he got a little too excited. Here's the point. What we understand today is, is that all it takes is a simple fuse to set loose the explosive power of nitroglycerin that's carefully packed into a stick of dynamite. The Bible also tells us consistently that it is simple faith, a willingness to believe, a divine compulsion, if you will, to put all, not some church, but all your trust in what Jesus did for you at the cross. The Bible says that's lighting the fuse that will set loose the supernatural power of Almighty God that he intentionally packed into his gospel message. It's important we understand that. Why? Because it's not about you trying to clean your life up first so somehow then you might eventually find your way to God. It's not about doing enough good things to somehow outweigh the bad things, even if we could. Church, hear me. It's not about anything you could do for God this morning, but rather it's about putting all your trust in what God has already done for us through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you find enough faith this morning, you'll discover dunamis power talks about intrinsic power, but it especially describes achieving power. What, what does the resurrection of Jesus prove beyond any shadow of a doubt? The gospel has the power to do what the Bible says it can do. Aren't you glad this morning? You think, well, Brother Rob, you don't know me. You certainly don't know anything about the one I'm praying for and everything that's going on in, in his or her life. That's, that's fair. But history tells us everything we need to know along with the Word of God about the man that was once called Saul that you and I know today as the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? Here's a man that we find Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road. He's there for one thing and one thing only. He is a murdering persecutor of the church. 
And he's chasing men and women who've had to run. They've had to flee. They couldn't stay because the, the persecution Saul and others have stirred up is so violently severe, they've had to flee. And Paul, Saul is chasing them down. What's going on in this man's heart? Man, out of anger and hatred, and, and he's trying to stamp out the name of Jesus. He wants to kill the church in its very infancy. And yet, glory of glories, it's Jesus who lovingly comes looking for him on that Damascus road. And in that moment, you know the story of not Acts chapter 9 is so amazing. Paul literally, as we proverbially talk about today, he saw the light, didn't he, church? Three days later, when the scales physically fell from his eyes, Paul finally was able to see that the very thing he had been fighting against is what he desperately needed more than anything else. The name he had come to hate with such vehemence, Jesus, was the name of one who loved him in ways he never could have imagined. The very gospel he warred against is the gospel that declared the good news that yes, even a murdering persecutor of the church could be forgiven, could be restored, could be welcomed to a relationship with God Almighty. No wonder Paul could never get over it, right? If you think about it, many of the, the letters we hold in our Bibles today penned by Paul were written by a man literally in chains. A man in prison, why is he there? He could not, he would not stop talking about Jesus and all the amazing things Jesus had done in his life. I ask you, what about us this morning? You might not have come looking for God today. Not really. It's so important, though, that you know that whether you're in this room or watching this service in your living room at home, Jesus is still looking for you. And what he did in Paul's life, listen, he wants to do in your life today. He can do that in your life today. If you find just enough faith to turn around from your sin, turn around from the way that you're going, and just come and trust to Jesus. We're going to invite you to do that today. Here in just a few minutes when the service ends, I'm going to encourage you, if you're, if you're at home, send a direct message. We, we'd love to talk with you. If you're here, I encourage you to navigate to one of the, the connection centers and you'll find a pastor, you'll find a decision counselor who's there, who's ready to talk with you, to answer questions, to pray with you, to, to, to help you get on the road to finding life in Jesus. There's nothing more important you can do than take that step this morning, and I hope that you will. Before we move on to our next point, though, church family, for just a moment, I need to lean in and talk with you. I would ask you for just a minute to try to think back. Can you remember where you were when God found you? Think for a moment. Where would that road have taken you if Jesus hadn't come looking in love and grace for you? Oh, when we stop, we think about all that God has done for us. How can we not be telling the people we love about the love of God that is available through faith in His Son, Jesus? Thirdly, I would suggest we, we should never be afraid, ashamed to share with our one or anyone we meet. For that very reason, the gospel is the priority need, the priority need of every man, woman, boy, and girl you're ever going to meet. If ever in doubt, go ahead, share the gospel. Amen? Now that's crossing the line for many today, isn't it? My goodness, what an audacious thing to say. And perhaps nothing is more politically incorrect 
<clears throat> Nothing triggers a response out of people today quicker, I think, than saying they need salvation through faith in Jesus. But we can't miss what Paul is so clearly trying to help us see in the text. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation for who, Paul? For everyone. Now, Paul immediately throws in two very important clarifiers. One, to everyone who believes, who comes to a genuine saving knowledge. We've already talked about that. But also this phrase, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. Now, some of your translations say Gentiles there, don't they? That, that's because what Paul's really trying to say in this moment is those who are beyond the Jewish nation, right? You realize that's us, correct? I mean, 99% of the people in the room, that, he's talking about us here. And not to oversimplify it, but hey, church, the only reason that any of us had an opportunity to even hear the gospel, much less have our lives changed by the gospel, is because Paul and countless other faithful witnesses have understood Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The good news wasn't just good news for the Jews, right? But rather, God had chosen a special people through whom all the peoples of the earth might have an opportunity to hear, respond to the gospel, be saved. And this morning, by the grace of God, you and I as the church, we are those specially chosen people. We are his ambassadors to whom he has entrusted the good news of the gospel and commanded us to do all we can to get it as many as can for as long as he tarries. We didn't read it. But as Paul transitions into this part of his letter, verse 14, he begins that section by saying, I'm a debtor. I'm in debt. He says, I'm a, I'm a debtor to both Greeks and barbarians. That's not very flattering to our contemporary ears, is it? I mean, you can't tweet that, right, Brother Adam? You'll get in all kinds of trouble doing that. In his day and time, though, I think all he meant to say by barbarians was referring to those, again, beyond the Roman Empire. You know, Greeks or Gentiles, those beyond the Jewish nation, uh, barbarians, he, he kindly means to say those that were outside the Roman Empire. So when Paul says, I'm under debt, and in some translations, I'm, I'm under an obligation, well, to who? Well, first of all, to the Lord, obviously, right? But, but under what kind of obligation to the Lord? Well, to be a faithful messenger of the good news. To who, Paul? I'm reading that to say basically everyone I meet, everyone who's living everywhere, Read it however you can, but from the opening chapter of the letter throughout this book, there's one thing abundantly clear. Paul's life, Paul's ministry was defined by a burden, a burden for the lost. What about us? Do we have genuine concern? How often do we find ourselves driven to prayer? Maybe even finding yourself awake at night out of a genuine concern, a burden for the spiritual reality of your neighbor. Spiritual condition of a family member or a friend. Do, do we still live under a sense of obligation to the Lord, an obligation to pray, to, to give, to go, so that others might have a chance to hear before it is eternally and everlasting too late? I think we should, because it's the greatest need of every man, woman, boy, and girl living anywhere in the world today is to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because, fourthly, the gospel reveals, and I would argue more importantly, provides the righteousness of God. 
Verse 17, Paul says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now perhaps in the amount of time I have left, let's just say the simplest definition of righteous could be right. That to live righteously means to live rightly. Hey, aren't you glad God does all things right? That our God is a righteous God. One of the truths that the gospel begins to reveal to us, I don't know that we'll ever fully comprehend. In fact, I don't think we will. But the gospel begins to reveal this incredible dilemma that a holy, righteous God experiences in trying to save unrighteous sinners. How can he justify the sinner and remain just in the process of doing so? It's no small thing, church. Now, I recognize in culture that we, a lot of us don't see a dilemma there, right? Like, how could God not love me, you know? And, and when we start thinking about our ones, I understand our emotions and a lot of other things come into play and, and we want to hope for the best. We want to hope that everybody's going to find their way to heaven and we begin to kind of think, well, surely a loving God wouldn't allow anybody to go to hell. And, and I understand all of that, but let me ask you for a moment. Uh, who here this morning really wants to believe? Who here this morning can believe in any concept of a God who isn't just and a God that won't do what's right? And a God that would just passively stand by and allow sin and hatred and anger and cruelty and violence just go on and on and on and never ever be called to account. You know it can't be that way. Something inside of our very soul cries out for justice. And in the gospel, we begin to see the righteousness of God who cannot, will not just look the other way and pretend as though our sin isn't what it really is. No, there's a price. There's a penalty that must be paid. But church, as you continue to look deeper into the gospel, you see this incomprehensible, this incomprehensible love of God whereby he himself through his son Jesus steps right into our place and where he takes upon himself the very punishment that our sin deserves. That's what's happening at the cross. Jesus has taken our place and he's allowed the very wrath of God himself to fall down on his shoulders. Yes, your, yes, your sins could be forgiven today. Hallelujah. But for one reason, one reason only. They have already been rightly, fully judged in the person of Jesus who willingly took your place, died, and rose again. But wow, wonder of wonders. Not only does the gospel show us how our sins might be forgiven through putting our faith in that death and resurrection, but it also teaches us how somehow, simultaneously, when the Holy Spirit of God comes and brings saving faith to our hearts, in that moment, He imputes to us the very righteousness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes that glorious truth this way, God made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, one of the reformers of our faith, it is reported, called this the great exchange. Jesus took our sin in exchange. He gives us his righteousness. Now, church, that's the most lopsided, unfair, ridiculous exchange that's ever happened in the history of the world. And yet it is the very foundation of our hope for salvation this morning. Why? Because what it means is when Jesus looks at me today, he doesn't see Rob with all his sin and failure and shortcomings. No, you know what he sees? He sees the very righteousness of his son, Jesus that's why I'm convinced through the New Testament we have all these glorious verses that talk about being hidden in Christ, clothed in Christ, walking in Christ. Listen, I don't know how you see yourself this morning. 
And I know some of you have come in quite discouraged because of this comparison culture that we live in with social media and so many other things. But it's so important if you're truly in Jesus, it is of the highest importance that you not forget how your Father sees you today. Because you could not be any more loved, accepted, embraced than you are right now in Jesus. Listen, church, the gospel that was powerful enough to save you is still saving you, and it's always going to be more than enough to save you from faith to faith, no matter where we find ourselves. I'm convinced, Brother Adam, that's why he quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk here, to remind us it doesn't matter what generation or situation. Faith comes alone, our righteousness comes only through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's our hope today. I have no idea how he knew I was out there. To be honest, I don't know if he even did. After a period of time, though, Jason's dad came walking out into that barn where I was, looked up. He said, son, all of us feel like crying here today. It's important that you know Jason's all right. Just moments before he died, he looked to his mom and me and said, dad, I'm ready to go see Jesus. Now, that was a lot more than just empty sentimentalism or the hope of heaven that every person has in a moment like that because his dad went on and told me how someone had come and shared the gospel, how Jason had believed, repented of his sins, and been saved. Aren't you glad God loves your one even more than you do? It's not dependent upon us. But here's the thing. Every single one of us here this morning you have a Jason in your life. And then we have the opportunity to be the one who tells you one about Jesus. I wish I could tell you I've never missed another opportunity to share the gospel after that night, but you already know better than that. And I, I promise, church family, I'm not trying to guilt or shame you of, of mistakes or opportunities you've missed. Number one, that's all under the blood of Jesus. Number two, I have far more failures than any successes I could possibly share today. Third, all I'm saying is we're here, and that means we have another chance. And I'm just encouraging you, don't miss that chance. And so today, why, why, why not commit yourself or recommit yourself to faithfully pray for your one? To, to continue to pray that God would work in his or her heart. God would open a door for you to share the gospel or someone to share the gospel in a way they could understand and respond and be saved. Why not sign up to egg your neighbor? Man, that sounds like an incredible idea. I got one neighbor I've been one. No, I've never mind. <laughs> what a great opportunity to, to, to try to share the gospel. Maybe you've realized in the course of our time together this morning that it's very possible you're the Jason in somebody else's life. You maybe not always understood what they were trying to share, maybe didn't always appreciate even how they tried to share, but you recognize it comes from a place of love. They, they want God's very best for you. And here's what, I, here's what I want you to hear before we close. You can have God's very best. It's available to you through faith in Jesus this morning. And so I urge you, I encourage you, send that direct message. Find your way to one of these connection tables. Here's what's really amazing. Not only will you find that we're waiting for you, but I'm convinced you'll find that Jesus is waiting for you this morning. Ready, available to do a work in your life if you'd put your trust in him. Would you pray with me and then Caleb will come and lead us in the song of response. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the glorious good news.
that today we have an opportunity. Our sins can be forgiven. Our brokenness can be restored. We can find life, life abundant in a relationship with you through Jesus' name. Father, for those of us who've walked with you a long time, we thank you that the gospel is still as life-giving today as it's ever been. We thank you for your grace, your sustaining grace in our life. We thank you for the incredible joy we have to be a messenger and ambassador of that gospel. Father, we pray that today, as you've laid hearts on our minds, that we'd be faithful. God, some of us, I pray that before we even leave this room or maybe this parking lot, that we might just fire a text. We might just say, hey, can we get together? There's something incredibly important I want to share. We might try again at work, whatever you would lead us to do. Father, most importantly of all today, we pray if there's one here that's not yet come and experienced salvation in Jesus' name, you'd give him, her, that faith to come to that connection table, start a conversation about Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.